Today's scripture is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. In the Pew Bibles, that's page 990. Again, that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 5. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'll invite you to take your Bibles once again and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're in the, the last chapter now of Paul's last letter to this young congregation, which means that we're drawing close to the end of this sermon series that we've called Faith, Hope, and Love. And uh, one indication that we're winding down is found in the the first words of this chapter, finally, brothers, although Paul is a typical preacher and uh, that means his, his finallys don't always mean that it's time to zip up your Bibles. There's still a fair amount of material yet to be covered. It really just means that we're now entering into the final section major section of the letter and uh, Paul still has to address one of the major issues that their congregation was going through uh, namely well he's already addressed some hasn't he he's he's dealt with their ongoing suffering uh, their their persecution he's he's addressed their susceptibility to false teaching especially the false teaching that would come and say that the day of the Lord has already come and you've missed the boat. Now this last major issue that Paul has to deal with has to do with the work ethic of some of the church members. And we're going to, Lord willing, look at that next week. But before we get to that really important stuff, there's, there's a matter of more pressing concern. And that is prayer. Prayer. These first five verses are all about Prayer. There's prayers requested, there's prayers that are made, and we'll want to consider the content of these so as to help us with our own prayers. And we want to model our prayers, and indeed we want to model our lives after the apostolic instruction that's given here. But you probably know me by now. I'm also very interested to show you something of the structure of this passage. Uh, we want to understand the text itself, but, but also I, I always like to point out the texture, if you will. And last week I showed you kind of the sandwich structure of verses 13 to 17. Uh, we saw that the commands of verse 15 come to us covered up top and bottom with the, with the wonder bread of all that God has done for us in the gospel. And all that God determines to do for us in Christ. In other words, as we said, our imperatives, the things that we must do, 
are hemmed in on either side by gospel indicatives. And and those indicatives, those declarative statements about what God has done in Christ, really that's what fuels and makes possible our obedience. Similarly, as we come into chapter 3, we're going to be urged to pray, and uh, we're going to be prayed for as well, but we'll want to know where is the power in all of this prayer? And uh, we'll want to ask the question, how can we pray with confidence? If those, if those elements are missing from our prayers, then we're going to feel like we're just kind of praying into the abyss. It's certainly not going to result in a, a prayer life that, that is earnest and constant. And maybe that's your problem today. Maybe that's something that you struggle with. I think to some degree we all struggle with that. Maybe an honest assessment of your prayer life would reveal that the reason that your prayers are so that might be so dull and lifeless mechanical if you will even if they exist at all i think that's that may be the honest assessment for some of you that you don't have much of a prayer life to speak of and may i suggest that what they might be missing what our prayers might be missing is the middle our prayers might be missing the the middle. Our prayers may in fact be hollow, and by that I mean they might not have any kind of center of confidence. Now the structure of our passage today demonstrates the, the proper pattern of prayer. What we have is a number of appeals, and all of those kind of revolve around a center of confidence. And if you want to use an analogy, if you think in pictures like I do, think about prayer as an apple, okay? I just, by the way, re recently realized that a lot of my analogies have to do with food. I don't, that's probably a bit of a red flag. Uh, nevertheless, we're in apple season here in New York, so think about an apple. You know, on the surface, you find a peel, but the good stuff is in the middle. In the same, in the same way, uh, outwardly, prayer may look like a peel or a bunch of appeals, but its, its center is to be a, a crispy sort of confidence in the Lord. Okay, so in, in keeping with our analogy, um, our outline for today, is going to kind of resemble a cross-section of an apple. Okay, so from top to bottom, there's kind of three layers that you encounter. Um, the appeal, the assurance, which is at the center, and then the appeal. Again, more appeals. The appeal, the assurance, the appeal. Okay, so that's, if you're taking notes, those will be some kind of uh, headings that, that you can follow, and it follows uh, down through a cross-section of an apple. Let's look at the first layer, the appeal. This uh, brings our attention to the first two verses of this passage. 
And again, the, the passage begins, finally, brothers, pray for us. Pray for us. I think it'll be helpful to recall that the us here refers to the Apostle Paul and Silvanus, who's also known as Silas, and Timothy. So this is a dynamic apostolic trio, if you could put it that way. And when you look at those names, those are, those are A-listers, right? These are, th- this is a, a, a dynamic trio if there ever was one. It's undisputed that the, the leader of this pack is one of the strongest Christians ever. You know, the Apostle Paul, for goodness sake. But Paul is asking for prayer. And that might seem like a very basic observation to make, but think about that. And then think about this. Who is he asking? He's asking Thessalonian believers. He's asking baby Christians, people who have been in the faith for maybe a year, probably less. Paul calls them brothers here. And he's, I, I hope you've noticed, he's been calling them that repeatedly over the course of these, last, of these two letters. And that term, brothers, that really captures, doesn't it, the idea of equality, not to mention affection. So when he asks these believers, these brothers and sisters to pray for him, Paul is humbly acknowledging his dependence on them as full partners in the gospel. That's such a a humble posture. One of the early uh, professors at Southern Seminary, a man by the name of F.H. Kerfoot, he was quoted by his students as saying, prayer is death to pride. Prayer is death to pride. And that, it seems to me, is true on so many levels. You know, it takes humility to hit your knees. It it demonstrates your absolute dependence on God. And then to ask other people to intercede for you, that indicates that you desperately need the brotherhood. There, There is no Christian that develops to the point of being independent that matures to the point where he doesn't need uh, brothers and sisters in the faith. In fact, what you'll find if you've been around some seasoned saints, what you'll find is that the more a person matures in the faith, the deeper their recognition of their absolute dependency. And usually what you find is a person who matures in the faith is one that is given more and more to prayer because they desperately need it. So please, don't ever be so proud as to fail to ask people to pray for you. And and don't just ask people that you think are more spiritual than you are, that, you know, we, we have this faulty thinking so much, and I encounter it quite a bit as a pastor. You know, people sometimes act really weird around me, and they, they you know, all of this false thinking has a way of coming out and they want me, a pastor, to pray for them. You know, and, and I think what they think is that I have some kind of direct pipeline to the throne of grace. No, don't ask, don't just ask people that are 
that you imagine are more spiritual and more godly and closer to the Lord than you are. Ask a young Christian. How about this? Ask a child to pray for you. Now, the appeals that we find in these verses are on two levels. You know, we've seen that the Apostle Paul appeals just generally to the Thessalonians to pray for him, but then there are a couple of specific appeals that he would have them make on his behalf. Okay, so to, to use the modern lingo, we're talking here about prayer requests. And I think it would be very interesting to see what Paul and his partners are asking the Thessalonians to ask the Lord for. You see, because our, our prayer requests really can't help but revere, reveal our priorities. You know, we, we ask for intercession about the things that are of greatest importance to us. If it's our, if it's our children, if it's our health. You know, these are the things, what you want to be prayed for about is the thing that's on the top of your mind. Now, so let, let's see what's on the top of Paul's mind. He has two main requests, and these are indicated by the, the words that. Okay, so in your, in your copy of God's word, that little word that indicates the content of these prayer requests. And there's, there's two general categories here. And he says, pray that, number one, the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. I guess one of the ways that you could summarize this is pray for progress. And notice that Paul is not asking uh, for personal progress here. No, what's top on Paul's mind is the progress of the gospel. Okay, here, here uh, the word of the Lord is personified. And it's, it's given the image of uh, a runner, uh, a sprinter. So maybe that'll help you if you can get an image in your head of a sprinter. For me, you know, I picture Ben Johnson, the, uh, the Canadian who won the gold in the 1988 Olympics in Seoul in the 100-meter dash. He was, a, he was known at that time as the fastest man in the world, world record holder. But then his medal was stripped, you know, just a couple hours later when he failed the, the post-race drug test. So I got to see Ben Johnson compete live in his first race after his suspension was lifted. It was at the Cops Coliseum in my hometown of Hamilton. And I was there with 17,000 other embarrassed Canadians, you know, looking for redemption. I, I remember exactly what I was wearing that day. I, it was a, a white t-shirt with these words in big block letters steroid free body <laughs> no one had any doubt because I was a scrawny 14 year old at the time but I I wanted to make a point anyway Ben came in second place so it was a bit of a disappointment but that was the first time that I got to see a big time sprinter up close and personal and um, despite all of the all the problems associated with Ben Johnson, I was just blown away by the power and the speed and the determination. 
And that's how God's word is described in this passage. It's described as exploding out of the blocks with power and speed and determination. Psalm 147.15 reads, and Glenn read this for us earlier in the service, that verse says, he sends out his command to the earth, his word runs swiftly. That's the idea here. And that gives, that gives a new meaning to the expression book in it, doesn't it? Uh, the word of the Lord, book in it. So Paul asks his friends to pray that the gospel would run, that it would run forward and fast without any kind of obstacles. But he also prays that they would, pray, he also asks that they would pray that the word would be revered. Not just that it would run, but that it would be revered, which is to say that it would be honored and glorified once it reached its destination. And this is probably the continuation of the image of that sprinter, because what happens at the finish line? The, the, the runner, if he wins, is received with wild applause. Right? And, and the people just go crazy and they decorate him with laurels and other, other tokens of honor. And this is what happens when the gospel is received with gladness and is believed on, resulting in salvation. That's what it means for the word to be honored and revered and glorified. It's for you to believe it and receive it. And this is precisely what happened when Paul and Barnabas preached in uh, Pisidian Antioch. And we read about this in Acts chapter 13, verse 48. That tells us that when the Gentiles heard this gospel that they, these missionaries proclaimed, it says, quote, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Luke goes on to report that the word of the Lord continued to run throughout that whole region. It's a beautiful uh, picture of the success and the progress of the gospel. Now, another example of what it means for the word of the Lord to run ahead and to be honored is the Thessalonians themselves. Paul reminds them at the end of verse 1 that this very thing happened among them. They received the gospel and the apostles and they received all of this with gladness and the result was that they turned from idols to serve the one true and living God. So when you put all of this together, I think Paul is gently telling them and us that we're not to be content just to be recipients of the gospel. We can't just rest on our laurels, so to speak. What a shame if the gospel were to have run to us and been received by us, revered by us, but then if the gospel had come to rest at us. What a, what a pity. On the contrary, our priority, our passion ought to be the continued running and reception of the word of the Lord beyond us into all the world into all the nations, every tongue, tribe, people, language. And that was Paul's passion and priority. You understand, 
And you understand this by what he immediately prays for and asks for prayer for. This is what he's dedicated his life to. This is the first thing that's on his mind. If you were to ask him, hey, Paul, how can I be praying for you? Instantly, he would say, without any hesitation, for the progress of the gospel. Now, some of you might object. You've got really good theology, so you might object and say, won't the word of the Lord speed ahead whether I pray or not? You know, isn't God's word going to accomplish the very thing that he sends it out to accomplish? What's the point of praying? The gospel is going to sprint anyways. It doesn't require any kind of performance-enhancing prayer. Well, actually, I don't know how all of that works together, but I do know that the Lord commands us to pray for this, and I do know that the Lord is pleased to use the means of his people's prayers to accomplish his great ends of salvation. It's kind of mysterious how he does this, but he authentically does this, and he commands us. Not only that, what a privilege it is to be a part of this. God certainly doesn't need to do it this way. But historically, it seems that whenever there's any kind of revival or spiritual awakening where the gospel kind of speeds ahead and is honored in a particularly effective way in a time and place, historically speaking, that always seems to correlate very strongly to the earnest prayers of the people of God. So brothers and sisters, let us, let's pray earnestly that the gospel would run and be revered in Benin, in Chad, in Central Asia, in Colombia, in Cambodia, and in Dansville. What, again, what a tremendous privilege and what a responsibility not just to be the purveyors of the gospel, but also to be partners in the gospel with others who are going forth on the, on the front lines. You know, when missionaries ask us um, to support them by our finances or by our prayers, they, when they say they need prayer support, that's not just kind of as an option if you can't support them financially. No, people who are on the front lines of gospel work desperately... <laughs> need prayer and they know this and we're partners in the gospels to the to the fullest extent when we are poured out in prayer for these workers so that's paul's first request okay here's his second this is in verse two and it follows the second that that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men so not only are we to appeal to the Lord for the, for the progress of the message, but also for the protection of the messengers. Of course, these two things are very related. You know, as believers go forth with the gospel, yes, some, some people will honor that word and believe, but many others will dishonor it. Many others will, will blaspheme and ridicule the word and us. And they'll, they'll persecute us who proclaim it. 
this very thing happened when Paul and Silas first came to Thessalonica. You may recall um, from Acts 17 that they were really only there for a couple of weeks when the opposition to the gospel grew so strong, so fierce, that there's actually a mob, a rabble that was formed, and the authorities got involved, and it was getting really bad, really nasty, really fast. And so the apostles had to flee that city by night. And now, as they write this letter, they're in Corinth. And the circumstances in Corinth are not good. They are facing fierce opposition, especially from the Jewish party of that city. So they're asking the Thessalonians to pray for them, just as when they were in their city, that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men. And again, you, don't, you get the impression, don't you, that Paul's not asking this selfishly. He, he's, not, he's not primarily concerned for his own personal safety and welfare. Rather, you, you get the strong impression that his concern is for the success of the gospel. And if evil and wicked people had their way, and if behind them the evil one had his way, the gospel would be severely hindered and hampered, if not stamped out completely. And so he asks us to pray that that would not happen. I love this next part. It's Paul's explanation for why he needs this prayer for protection. He says, for not all have faith. And if that's not the understatement of the eon, I don't know what is. Not all have faith. And I think we probably hear that and chuckle, and it just kind of reinforces our, our negative and frequent thoughts about all of the wicked people that are in the world and how, because of them, our world and our culture, as we know it, is going to hell in a handbasket. And we shake our heads and we spit out our tisk tisk tisks. But I think that Paul, Paul probably says, for not all have faith with tears in his eyes. I think that that thought horrifies him. I think it fills him with a zeal to proclaim Christ so that the wicked and so that the evil might come to faith. Such were some of you. Such was he. He was one who had devoted his life to stamping out the faith and to persecuting and even putting to death Christians. And so when he considers the evil people and the wicked people in the world, he doesn't view them as others. He views them as who he once was, except for the grace of God. And may that also be our perspective and our passion and our prayer to see wicked and evil people come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the appeal. Paul appeals to the Thessalonians to appeal to the Lord for the progress of the gospel and for the protection of the gospelers. Now we come to the middle section now, 
This is verses 3 and 4 where we find the assurance. When I was a kid, uh, one of my teachers showed us how if you cut an apple in half horizontally, the, the seeds in the core show up as a star, kind of arranged in a, a really cool star pattern. And I loved that as a kid, and I still love that today. And in our analogy, the very cool star-shaped center of this passage and of all of these prayers is an unwavering confidence in the Lord. And how we get there is a pivot from the faithlessness of the wicked to the faithfulness of the Lord. It's a sort of play on words that Paul uh, engages in here. It's a play on the word faith. Paul has just spoken about how the wicked don't have faith and how they're causing problems for the progress of the gospel. But there's no way that that's getting the last word. The Lord's faithfulness is going to get the last word. The faithfulness of God trumps everyone else's faithlessness. Do you understand? And this reminds me a bit of what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians Sorry, I think this is 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. I, I love that passage because Paul is kind of on a, on a roll saying, if, he is, if we are this, then he is this. And it's all matching. But then he says, if we are faithless, and he can't talk about God being faithless, and that prompts him to, to talk about, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. God's faithfulness gets the last word. And thus, it can serve as the center of our confidence. You can, you can hear Paul's confidence, can't you, in verse 3? He says, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And notice, notice how Paul has pulled a switcheroo here. He started off asking that they pray for him, but suddenly, without even really realizing it, he's talking about them. He's seeking to encourage them. A second ago, he was talking about his own need to be delivered from evil, and now he's expressing confidence that they themselves are going to be delivered from evil. And something else that the Apostle Paul is confident about is the Thessalonians' faithfulness to obey the Apostles' instructions and commands. I think that this is probably a, a flashback to the imperatives that we looked at last week. You remember this? Verse 13, to, um, to stand firm. Sorry, this is in, this is in uh, verse 15. The imperative for us last week was stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that they were taught by the apostles. And so Paul is really encouraging them and saying that he expects that they're going to do what he's commanded them to do. But also, I, I want you to just, this is a preview Okay, I think that this is a setup for the commands that he's about to give them in chapter 3. 
and uh, I'll point this out hopefully next week, but command is going to be a key word in the upcoming discussion about idleness. And already Paul is expressing his confidence that they're going to be obedient in these matters. So Paul is confident in the Thessalonians' faithfulness to obey all of these commands. And that's got, no doubt, that's encouraging for these believers to hear. But it's even more encouraging when you consider where Paul's confidence is placed. Notice, and notice this by looking at the text. It's not placed in the Thessalonians. It has to do with the Thessalonians. It has to do with their obedience. But his confidence is not placed in the Thessalonians. The language in verse 4 is very clear. We have confidence in the Lord about you. So even there, his confidence, the center of his confidence is the Lord. And I hope that point is very, very clear. We can have confidence that our prayers will be heard and answered because of the faithfulness of the Lord. When we pray for believers to be evangelized, or when we pray for, uh, for ourselves and others that they would evangelize and proclaim the good news. When we pray that, uh, that we and others will escape evil, the prayer that we would be established in our faith. When we pray for others to obey, both in the present and in the future, we can pray all of these things with total confidence, confidence in the Lord, because he is faithful. And this, this is how Paul consistently prays. If you, if you do a little study and just go through all of his letters and pull out all of the places where he is praying, you'll, you'll see that at their core, his prayers have a center of confidence in the Lord. I love how he, pre he prayed for these same believers at the very end of his previous letter. He offered this benediction, and, and you'll probably know this quite well. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That, that's a confident prayer. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, do you pray like that? Do you pray with that bold of an ask, you know, for complete sanctification in the complete person? Do you, do you pray with that kind of power, with that kind of confidence? I'm saying on the basis of the word of God that we can pray like that. We ought to pray like that because our confidence is in a God who is so faithful. Let's look at our third point. The appeal. Verse 5. If you keep looking down the section of an apple, you'll come once again to appeal. And here at the bottom of our passage, we have another appeal. Except now, you know, Paul has slapped down that Uno reverse card fully. He's full on praying for the Thessalonian believers. 
And I, I think that this is just a wonderful demonstration of the kind of reciprocity that is required in our prayers. You know, in the Christian life, the deal is, I'll pray for you, and you pray for me. In Philippians, Paul, Paul will counsel us to have the same attitude, the same mind that Christ had, in putting the interests of others ahead of our own personal interests, and in making the needs of others our top priority. Prayer, you understand, is just one of the ways that we can prefer others. And we do that every time that we intercede on behalf of someone else. As I say, uh, Paul models this so beautifully in, in, in how he switches almost effortlessly from requesting prayer for himself to actually praying earnestly for the Thessalonians. And here's how he appeals for his friends. Verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. That, my friends, is a wonderful thing to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It, it might not seem obvious to you how, but just think about it. What are, what are we called to do most basically in the Christian life? I, I suppose you could summarize, summarize it like this. We are to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to give our, our hearts and our hands to every good work and word, as the last uh, verse of chapter 2 puts it. That's what we're to be about. Diligently giving ourselves to every good work and word. So every deed that we do and every declaration that we make is to be characterized by love. And how, how is this going to be possible? And if, if it is possible, how are we going to be able to sustain it over the long haul? How can we keep doing this? It's only going to be possible and sustainable if our hearts are directed to the love of God. When we contemplate the everlasting love of God that is for us, only then are we going to be so captivated and so compelled by it that we're going to want to redirect that love that's been poured out in our hearts to others for the, for the sake of others. So to put this another way, we're, we're going to love when we recognize the amazing ways that he has loved us first. We love because he first loved us. What else are we called to do, along with the Thessalonians? To persevere. To endure persecution and hardship. We're called to suffer well. And you know, by bitter experience, how difficult that is. Wouldn't you agree that every, when we're suffering, everything in us is screaming, is like recoiling against it and screaming for ease and, and comfort and peace. It's almost like we instinctively know that we're, we're built for glory. We're not built ultimately for all of these trials. And there is glory at the end of all of this, believe me. 
believe the word. There, there's glory to be had, and this is where our hope is, is based. But the pathway to glory always leads through persecution. And in persecution, we are called to persevere. How do we do that? How can we possibly do that for one day or for 50 days or for 33 years? We can only do that when our hearts are directed to the endurance of Christ. When we consider his steadfastness in the midst of unspeakable suffering, it's then that we're strengthened to endure our own difficulties then we can actually get to the point where we consider it a great privilege and joy even to be able to share in the sufferings of christ to be able to participate in in his perseverance and so paul prays for them and he prays for us even as we're called to pray on behalf of others and and we can make all of these appeals with bold assurance if all of these appeals have at their center an unshakable confidence in the Lord, in his unfailing love, and in his steadfastness. We, we can pray these things knowing that he will surely do it because the one who calls us is faithful. Amen? Amen.